This is Steve Carroll, and you're listening to the EM Basic Podcast. Today we'll be talking about psychiatric medical screening. This is a process where we evaluate patients with a primary psychiatric complaint for any medical issues that could be causing or contributing to their psychiatric condition. While these charts are not usually the most coveted charts in the rack, there are a lot of pitfalls to evaluating these patients. Every once in a while, we can make a great catch that will find that rare medical condition that will save the patient from harm and from a psychiatric admission. We'll talk about how to approach the workup to these patients, how to appropriately screen them for medical issues, and how to catch those patients who have a medical cause to their psychiatric condition. As always, this podcast doesn't represent the views or opinions of the Department of Defense, the U.S. Army, or the Fort Hood Post Command. So let's get started. Before we even look at the chart, let me hammer home one very important point when it comes to screening psychiatric patients. Your utmost concern at all times has to be the safety of yourself, your staff, and the patient. If you have ever trained as an emergency medical technician or other first responder, you'll know that the very first thing you do is to make sure that the scene is safe. In fact, I am sure that hearing that term brings back memories of practical exams where the first words out of your mouth were, scene safe, body substance isolation precautions. In this case, scene safety means ensuring that the patient does not have the means to harm anyone else and that they are changed into a gown with their clothes and shoes stored somewhere outside of their room. These patients need to be stripped down to their underwear to ensure that they don't have any weapons on their person. If necessary, involve your security staff and or the police to do this. Having the patient take off their clothes and shoes and removing them from the room will make it much less likely that they will try to leave the ED since all they will have on them is a hospital gown. Now, we won't be talking about how to treat acutely agitated patients in this episode, but I just wanted to put a reminder in here to always be on your guard with these patients to ensure that everyone stays safe. Finally, you have to know your state's laws on how to go about detaining psychiatric patients. You may have to place patients in some sort of involuntary hold or emergency detention if they want to leave but they are homicidal or suicidal. This may involve getting the police involved, so make sure you know your state's laws on this issue. Now that we've talked about that, let's look at the chart. The first thing to do is look at the vital signs, paying special attention to any tachycardia, fever, and low pulse locks. While all vital signs are important, these red flags are the most serious ones that need to be addressed, so make sure to circle any abnormal vital signs and be sure to address them. Before you go into the room, read the entire triage note to find out why the patient is here. These patients usually come in for one of two reasons. Either they have expressed suicidal ideation, also called SI, or they have been brought in by someone else because they are acting strangely. Patients with simple SI tend to be much more straightforward medically than those brought in for acting strangely, but we always have to be on the lookout for medical causes for their SI. When you talk about patients acting strangely, this becomes more of an altered mental status workup. So be aware that the SI chart in the rack could be more of an altered mental status workup that will take a much different approach. Once you have read the chart, enter the room and introduce yourself to the patient. While most patients with SI will be calm and mostly rational, it is always a good idea to make sure that you stand between the door to the room and the patient. In fact, This is good advice for any patient that we see in the ED 
because we can never predict when someone may turn violent. I am not advocating for us to be distrustful of every patient that we encounter, just to maintain situational awareness to stay safe. After you have introduced yourself to the patient, get a seat and sit down and be prepared to listen. You'll want to start this off by asking the patient why they are here in the ED, and you should just let them talk for a few minutes if they want to. Ask them what brought them in and what is bothering them. Some patients may be able to give you the entire picture in a minute or two, while some may need some guidance. Be patient and make sure you really nail down why they are in the ED. If the patient doesn't readily admit to being suicidal or homicidal, then you need to be direct and ask them the question, do you feel like you want to hurt yourself or others? You have to ask this question directly to establish whether SI or HI is the true chief complaint. You aren't going to make them suddenly suicidal by asking them this question, and you need to be direct about it. When you are first interviewing the patient, you have to pay attention for subtle body language and other clues. If the patient seems really evasive, pay attention to that. Are they hyper and on edge, or somnolent and depressed looking? Do they seem to be blowing off your concerns about SI, or changing their story? Pay attention to these verbal and nonverbal clues, because they will be very important in your decision making down the road. If you have a patient who admits to SI, find out the specifics about how often they have thought about it, and if they have a plan on how they would go about committing suicide. Once again, you aren't going to make the patient suicidal by asking these questions. You are just trying to figure out how much the patient has thought about suicide, and how committed they are to doing it. The actual method of their suicide doesn't matter as much as how much they believe that it will actually kill them or harm them. For example, if the patient says, I was going to kill myself by taking 10 tablets of ibuprofen, you and I know that the only thing that will happen is that the patient will get a bad stomach ache and maybe some transient acute renal failure. However, if the patient is convinced that this would kill them, then you have to be concerned. All of this talk is to gather data so that you can talk to your psychiatric consultant regarding the patient's disposition. After you have established the patient's intent, ask them about their social and psychiatric history. Find out who they live with and what kind of support structure they have. Are they all alone in their house with no family in the same city? Or do they have a supportive spouse, friends, or children? Try to find out what are their current life stressors that could be contributing to their SI. Ask the patient if they have any guns in their home, as this puts them at high risk for suicide completion. Ask the patient if they have ever been hospitalized for a psychiatric condition before, and whether they have ever been prescribed psychiatric medication. Finally, ask the patient about their general medical history, their medications, allergies, surgeries, family history, and social history, as you would any other patient. Do a good review of systems that hits all the major systems, including neuro and endocrine, that could be the culprit. Remember that it is our job to catch any underlying medical issues that may be causing the patient's psychiatric complaints, so be thorough in your questioning of their medical issues. Now you need to make sure to examine the patient. You should make sure to do a full exam, but pay special attention to the neuro exam and the patient's mental status. You'll first want to make sure that the patient has a clear mental status. See if they can tell you their name, where they are, and what day it is. Make sure they aren't having any difficulty speaking or having confusion while they are talking. Certain psychiatric associations have suggested that every psych patient in the ED should be screened with a mini mental status examination 
but I think this is way overboard. While they argue that it can be done in five minutes, I would challenge a psychiatrist to get this done in a timely manner while dealing with a full ED. While the mini mental status examination can be useful, I think we are pretty good at picking up on the patient's mental status as we take their history. If the patient is having difficulty speaking or has lots of confusion while they are giving their history, then we usually pick up on that. I'm just not sure how much a mini mental status exam adds to our whole diagnostic picture. If you aren't sure whether or not the patient has a depressed mental status and you have the time, there's nothing wrong with doing a mini mental status exam, but I wouldn't say it should be routine. Let's review all of this before we go into the workup of these patients. Make sure that the patient is stripped down to their underwear and that they have a gown on. Make sure to remove their clothes and shoes from the room and have the patient search by security if you are concerned about weapons. Check the vitals on the chart. Take special note of tachycardia, fever, and the low pulse ox. Read the entire history and try to differentiate between SI and altered mental status. When you enter the room, introduce yourself to the patient and have a seat by their bed while keeping yourself between the patient and the door. Ask the patient what brings them in and be prepared to listen first and guide the conversation as needed. Make sure you can articulate why the patient is in the ED. If the patient doesn't come out and say it, ask them directly whether they are thinking about hurting themselves or others. Ask them if they have a plan and gauge how serious they are about carrying out this plan. Get a social history to include living situation, family support, and firearms in the house. Ask about previous psychiatric treatment or admissions. Finally, do a complete exam, paying special attention to the neuro exam and the patient's mental status. Now let's talk about the workup for these patients. While I'm sure that you're expecting me to spat out the usual SI lab set that we all know and love, let me make it clear that a large part of this testing is wasteful and unnecessary. In young, healthy patients with a known history of psychiatric issues and or a totally clear sensorium, this testing is extremely low yield. However, most psychiatric facilities require a boatload of tests as a standard practice before the patient is admitted. So why is that? The answer is that they may not have a regular medical doctor that sees these patients frequently, so they are looking to catch common medical mimics of psychiatric disease before the patient is admitted. They also want to rule out any big medical conditions that may cause a problem during the inpatient stay. While I agree with their intent, the vast majority of these labs come back negative and aren't helpful to us or the patient. There's been lots of literature published on this topic that I will link to in the show notes, but the reality is that we have to accept whatever system we are given and follow the rules. So let's review the standard psychiatric medical screening workup that we do for most patients. I will go through the list as a whole, then one by one with a somewhat plausible reason why we do that particular test. The standard workup includes a CBC, Chem 10, TSH, acetaminophen level, ETOH level, aspirin level, urine HCG for females, a UA and UDS, an EKG, and optionally LFTs. So let's go over those one by one. So CBC, the thought here is you want to find an anemia, Chem 10 to look for electrolyte imbalances, TSH for hypothyroidism that could cause depression. Next is the acetaminophen level. So this is actually one blood test that you really should keep because this is important 
because acetaminophen overdoses can be totally asymptomatic. An ETOH level to make sure that the patient is intoxicated, although you should be able to tell clinically. Aspirin level is for aspirin overdose, although once again, you should be able to tell clinically. Urine HCG for females because they are pregnant until proven otherwise. A UA for UTI and a UDS or urine drug screen for drugs of abuse. An EKG for arrhythmia or prolonged intervals. And some institutions also want an LFTs to screen for liver disease. I really don't get that at all. Because I guess that you could say that you're screening for hepatic encephalopathy. But that should be obvious clinically. And you shouldn't need LFTs or even an ammonia level to tell you that. So let's say that you have a patient with SI. You've done their HMP and there are no red flags, and their labs come back normal, or at least nothing that you have to do anything about. At this point, if you have done your due diligence by doing a good H&P and addressed any possible red flags, you are done. You can talk to a psychiatrist about the next step. We'll talk more about psychiatric disposition in a second, but first let's talk about the patient who needs a bigger workup beyond the usual SI panel. In order to catch those patients who have a medical cause to their psychiatric complaint, we have to be vigilant for a few red flags. We need to look at the entire situation for things that don't make sense. For example, if a patient has never had any psychiatric issues whatsoever, but one day suddenly becomes erratic, depressed, and suicidal for seemingly no good reason, then this is not right. This goes double for the young and the old. If the patient is in their 20s with no psych history whatsoever, but suddenly starts acting erratically, maybe this is herpes meningitis or a brain tumor. If the patient is older and doesn't have any major life stressors, but suddenly becomes suicidal, that doesn't make sense either. Why have they gotten to 50 or 60 years old and never had a psychiatric issue until now? That just doesn't make a lot of sense. Let me illustrate this point by telling you about two patients whom I saw during my residency who raised the alarm bells for me. I talked about one of these patients during the episode on altered mental status, but their stories bear repeating here. One patient was a male in his 60s who said he suddenly felt depressed and suicidal. No psych history, no life stressors or anything. He just felt super depressed. The nursing note noted that the patient had a shuffling gait, which I noticed as well in my neuro exam, but otherwise his neuro exam was completely stone cold normal. I remember saying to my attending, I'm going to get a CT scan since he is older, but I think it will be normal. The radiologist called me a while later and told me that the patient had a large subdural with signs of herniation on the CT. I didn't believe her at first. I thought she had the wrong patient. Sure enough, when I asked the patient about any trauma, he said that he fell a week and a half ago, but didn't pass out, and he thought nothing of it. He was admitted and had his subdural drained by neurosurgery. After it was drained, he had no more complaints of SI. To this day, I contend that I, along with the neurosurgeon, are the only doctors to ever completely cure a patient of their SI. Well, maybe not, but I like to think that's the case. The other case was also a male in his 60s who was acting bizarrely and was hallucinating that he was seeing people in his backyard. Once again, his neuro exam was unremarkable, and he even had a clear sensorium when I talked to him. I just thought that he seemed a little weird. I also remember telling my attending that I thought the CT scan would be negative. Wrong again, he had a big subdural on CT. These two cases perfectly illustrated the concept that if the patient's psychiatric complaints just don't don't make sense because of their age or the suddenness of their onset, 
you need to cast a wider net. Such red flags include a sudden onset of symptoms, an age greater than 40, visual or tactile hallucinations, and a fluctuating level of consciousness. So when we talk about casting a wider net for these patients, this usually refers to getting a non-contrast head CT and or a lumbar puncture. The head CT will help us rule out any masses or bleeding in the brain, while the LP will help us rule out any form of meningitis. Keep in mind that I'm not advocating a CT and LP on every patient with SI, but we need to consider it if things aren't adding up. So if the patient's story seems odd and not like the usual case of SI, take a step back, cast your net wider to other medical diagnoses, and pursue the appropriate workup. Here's the bottom line on medical screening of psychiatric patients. You have to pretend that you are the last doctor that will see the patient. This is not meant as an insult to our psychiatric colleagues. They do a great job of taking care of this incredibly vulnerable patient population that few doctors want to take care of. However, most psychiatrists will be the first ones to admit that they have very limited training in dealing with medical disorders like meningitis or head trauma that could masquerade as a psychiatric condition. So while these medical screenings may seem unexciting, cumbersome, and time-consuming, we owe it to the patient to make sure that we aren't missing a major medical problem before we send the patient to a psychiatric facility. Now let's talk about how to disposition patients with psychiatric complaints. At this point, patients fall into two major categories. Those patients who are acting bizarrely and those patients with suicidal ideation or homicidal ideation. Let's talk first about those patients who are acting bizarrely. Sometimes patients will come into the ED with a long-standing history of psychiatric illness who are found wandering the streets acting weird. This in and of itself is not an indication for admission. If you talk to the patient and they have a clear sensorium, a negative history and physical, no SI or HI, and a negative medical workup, they may be able to be discharged. In the U.S., you have the right to wander the streets acting bizarrely with an untreated psychiatric condition as long as you aren't hurting yourself or anyone else or breaking any laws. We can certainly try to help these patients by having them talk to the social worker and get them some social services, but if the patient doesn't want to stay, then we may be able to safely discharge them. However, if you have any doubts as to any part of the patient's medical condition or that the patient may hurt themselves or others, get a psych consult to help you make that decision. The other kind of psych patient is the one that has SI or HI. We see many more patients complaining of SI than HI, and it is important that we properly disposition these patients. The most important part of this process is to get a thorough history from the patient about their feelings of SI. You need to ask them the direct questions about whether they want to hurt themselves or others, if they have a plan to hurt themselves, and whether they have access to weapons or other ways to hurt themselves. You also need to assess their social situation by finding out whether they have a good social support structure, like a spouse, family, and friends. After you have completed the history and medical screening, you should consult psych to come evaluate the patient. If you don't have psychiatry readily available, we'll talk about how to disposition these patients in a minute. When you talk to the psychiatrist, they will want to know everything in the psych history we just talked about. They will also want to know if the patient has any history of psychiatric illness or is taking any psychiatric medications. Finally, they will want to know for sure that the patient has been medically screened 
so they can focus on their psychiatric issues. At this point, the psychiatrist should talk to the patient and help you make a decision as far as disposition. If the psychiatrist agrees with admission to your hospital or a psych facility, then your job is done. It may take several hours or even days to move the patient to a facility, so make sure you do what you can to make the patient comfortable. Make sure they can get something to eat, and consider medications such as benzodiazepines if the patient gets agitated from the long wait in the ED. Now let's change the situation a little. Let's say that you think the patient needs to be admitted to the hospital, but the psychiatrist disagrees. This is where you need to make sure that the psychiatrist has the whole picture. Make sure that the patient hasn't changed their story and started to deny SI or HI. Make sure that you tell the psychiatrist what you're concerned about to make sure that they can make the right decision. Finally, let's talk about the situation where you're working somewhere without psychiatric services that are readily available. While most medical students and residents train at major academic centers that have most specialties readily available, the reality is is that the majority of EM providers work at smaller community hospitals that may not have good access to a psychiatrist. In some of these cases, we may have to make the decision to discharge a patient with SI whom we think has a low risk of committing suicide. These patients should have a good support system and ready access to a psychiatrist. Now we could do a whole other podcast on how to assess these patients as low risk versus high risk, but Rob Orman from the ERCast podcast has already done an episode on suicide risk assessment. I'll put a link to that particular episode in the show notes if you're interested in how to risk stratify psychiatric patients with SI. If you work in an academic medical center, then it's easy to call a psychiatrist to evaluate these patients, but I want to at least acknowledge that there is a whole other world out there in regards to community hospitals. It's a different practice environment, so just realize that one day you may work at a place where you have to make these kinds of decisions on your own. Let's do one final review of the big points before we wrap it up. Get whatever labs are required by your psychiatric facility to work up these patients. This usually includes a CBC, Chem 10, acetaminophen level, ETOH level, salicylate level, UA, UDS, a urine HEG for females, and an EKG. LFTs may be required as well. Of all these labs, the acetaminophen level and EKG are probably the most important because acetaminophen overdose doesn't have a prodrome, and an EKG can help you tease out other drug overdoses like TCAs. If the patient has red flags, like a sudden onset of psychiatric symptoms, age of onset of 40 or over, visual or tactile hallucinations, or a fluctuating level of consciousness, then expand your workup to include a non-contrast head CT and a lumbar puncture, looking for intracranial mass, bleeding, or meningitis. Patients who have a long-standing history of psychiatric illness, who are found wandering the streets acting bizarrely, may not necessarily need to be admitted if they have a clear sensorium, a negative history, physical, and workup, and they deny SI or HI. If you have any doubts about this, consult a psychiatrist. If the patient has SI or HI, consult a psychiatrist about the patient's disposition. If the psychiatrist agrees with the admission, make sure to make the patient comfortable while the patient waits for admission to a psychiatric floor or facility. If the psychiatrist disagrees and thinks that the patient can go home, then make sure that the patient hasn't changed their story 
and that the psychiatrist knows all the facts. If you don't have ready access to a psychiatrist at a community hospital, then you may have to determine whether the patient is at low risk or high risk for suicide. Rob Orman from ERCast did a great episode on suicide risk assessment. I'll put a link on the website at embasic.org. That's all I have for now on psychiatric medical screening. Please let me know if you have any questions or comments on this topic. After I sign off, there will be a short bonus section as a follow-up for the testicular pain episode. A community ED doctor contacted me with some comments on ultrasound for testicular pain, and I think I owe it to you all to relay his thoughts on the issue. So stay tuned for that. Finally, let me make one quick announcement. For some reason, some of the recent posts dating back to late July did not post correctly on iTunes. This resulted in only the PDFs of the show notes being downloaded through iTunes instead of the actual podcast. For some reason, it worked fine on my iPhone, but when I used the desktop version of iTunes, it was only downloading the show notes and not the audio. I fixed the problem, so if you weren't getting a weekly episode from late July until about two weeks ago, go back into your iTunes and try to download the other episodes. You may want to try unsubscribing to the podcast and then resubscribing to refresh the episodes. Sorry about that. I'm not quite sure why the posts were messed up. Until next time, this is Steve Carroll for the Ambasic Podcast, signing off. Now it's time for the bonus section. A few weeks ago, I did an episode on testicular pain where I advocated that every patient should get an ultrasound. Since I published that episode, Dr. Mike Jasenbach emailed me with his thoughts on the issue. He's a community ED doctor who has a different take on this issue. He contends that if you have a patient who has several days of dull testicular pain, has a normal lie and cremaster reflex, and it is only tender on their epididymis, then you can check a urine, treat for epididymitis, and discharge the patient without patient follow-up with an ultrasound later if necessary. He contends that this clinical scenario is classic epididymitis and clinical judgment should be sufficient without an ultrasound. In addition, at community EDs, ultrasound techs may not be available 24 hours a day, and you may not have any EM docs that are credentialed to do testicular ultrasounds. This makes it difficult to get an ultrasound at 3 o'clock in the morning. This is a big difference between academic centers and community EDs. While most providers train at large academic centers, we should realize that it is a much different world out there in the community, and you may not have every test or consultant available at all hours of the day. This means that you have to use your clinical judgment and gestalt sometimes to make the call rather than get that test or consultation. This is the reality of community emergency medicine, but this clinical judgment takes a long time to develop. So here's my compromise. If you're working at an academic center with an ultrasound tech right down the hall, then you should get the ultrasound on every patient with testicular pain. If you're working in the community and the ultrasound is hard to get during off hours, you may have to make the call. However, if you're working in an academic center, before you send the patient for ultrasound, ask yourself this question. If I didn't have access to ultrasound, what would I do? Would I treat for epididymitis and discharge? Or would I wake up an ultrasound tech at 3 a.m. or a urologist to come in to take the patient to the OR for testicular exploration? In fact, I would argue that if you're doing emergency medicine training, you should always ask yourself, what would I do if I couldn't get this test or consultation? Because one day that may be the case, and you need to know what to do. 
This becomes even more important once you are a senior resident and you're close to working in the community. Now, all that being said, about a week ago, I had a lively Twitter debate with several EM people about this issue, and there was a lot of back and forth. There are some studies that show that even a good history and physical exam is not enough to exclude torsion. Some argued that you can still avoid an ultrasound if everything is classic. Others argued that the medical legal climate of the U.S. just doesn't allow you to skip the ultrasound. I am a fan of getting an ultrasound in all patients with testicular pain, but we should recognize that like most things in EM, nothing is black and white, and there's always room for debate. My suggestion is to keep up on Twitter with the EM people out there so you can watch these debates unfold and maybe learn a thing or two. My Twitter handle is at EMBasic, and I really only use the account for EM stuff, so if you look at the people I follow, you can find some really great EM people to follow on Twitter. That's it for now. Let me know if you have any questions or suggestions by emailing or going to the website. Until next time, this is Steve Carroll for the EM Basic Podcast, signing off.